2 Corinthians chapter 8, please. And I want to deal with the subject of money and finance. And I think I'll do this over two sessions rather than one. So we'll start our reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to think about some of the principles of giving and finance from the first part of this chapter. And then we might think next time about some of the mechanisms that ought to be in place to facilitate this and to put this into practice. So let's deal, first of all, with some of the uh, principles that Paul brings to bear upon the subject in this section of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Reading from verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record ye, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Inasmuch that we desire Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence and in your love too, as see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may yet be a performance also out of that which you have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye be burdened. But by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Now that will do it for our reading, and we are trusting God to bless our consideration of it this evening. Now, before I deal with this uh, section in particular, I want to draw a general point of difference between the subject of giving in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, because there's a significant difference between the two. Sometimes that difference, I would suggest, is misunderstood when you come to the subject of giving and finance amongst Christians, and you would hear the word tithe used often in relation to New Testament churches, and as a practice of giving or perhaps even a guideline to giving um, in a New Testament church. And so people would speak about tithing in a New Testament context. However, I want to show you that that is not actually what the New Testament teaches about giving and is never instructed for a New Testament church. When you think about tithing, you need to understand it in the context of a law which was given to a nation and for a taxation system for that nation to exist. In the Old Testament, there were two categories of giving. There was required giving, and there was voluntary giving amongst the people of God. 
even before Moses gave the law, when the people of God were very much an embryonic nation, really an extended family, huge extended family, right enough. But as they came down prior to Moses, required giving was initially prescribed by Joseph in Egypt. And there was that 20% that had to be deducted for the national government and for the preservation of Egypt. And so there was the context of national emergency, the need to take 20% slice of everything, store it for the future. Then Moses came along and during the time of Moses, God ordained tithing. But he did so in the context of a nation of a society and of an infrastructure that required to be paid for and financed so that there were different tithes that were to be given. The first tithe, the first 10% of income was to support the Levites who were the, if you like, Israeli national or Israeli civil service, better to put it that way. And they ran the nation. They dealt with the law, they interpreted the law and so forth. And remember that Israel was a theocracy and these were basically government workers. They kept the whole nation ticking over and had to be funded. They didn't have any uh, land like the others that they could go and farm and, and get an income from. They had to be paid in order for the nation to uh, function. Then on top of that tithing, there was another 10% every, every year, which went to, if you like, <laughs> I say this in relation to Bridge Weir, the festival committee. Now, we have a festival committee, but there was festivals, national religious festivals that had to be paid for. The national festivals, the national holidays, the great religious conclaves and occasions all had to be funded. And so 10% of your income went towards that. So you had 10% for the Levites, you had 10% basically for the national life and the participation in that in terms of celebrations, uh, religious convocations and so on. Then every third year you had to pay a third, another 10%. So a third tranche, if you like. This was to go for the welfare to the poor, the orphans and the widows and so on. So it was into a welfare fund. Now, if you take that and average over, you then got something close to our taxation system. You had about 23% or so of your income was taxed and it went to central government within Israel. And that was the tithing. It was a theocracy, so it wasn't just rendered. It was rendered to government because government was of God and therefore it was rendered to God. Then on top of that, you had the principle of free will giving. And free will giving was something that was not prescribed. You gave from the heart. You gave voluntarily, willingly, sacrificially. And the extent of your giving was determined by yourself. And so if you wanted to give to God, then there were procedures and there was a facility for you to do so in a variety of ways. So that was sacrificial giving that was voluntary. And as God moved your heart, then you responded and you gave. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you find that essentially it's the same. Remember this, that those who run government, even though it's not a theocracy, are still seen as those who are serving God, because government is of God and government servants are doing God's work, although they are far from aware that that's what they're doing. But that is exactly what God would have within society. And we as Christians have a responsibility to pay our tax, to fund government, because government is of God. That's required giving for Christians. That's non-negotiable. 
So as believers, we pay our taxes, we render our dues to society because government and structure and society and order all require us to be funded and Christians ought to bear that responsibility. So when we're paying our tax, believe it or not, it is an act which is spiritual. It has a spiritual implication. It is a righteous response to God's principles of government, which is that you pay for government. You fund that which you gain the benefit from and you don't try and shirk it. So you pay your share. But on top of that, as Christians, we also, in our New Testament context, have the opportunity to give voluntarily to God. And there again, there's a variety of ways we can do that and a variety of opportunities so to do. We can give into our local church. We can give to other work that goes on outside our local church. We can give into uh, the needs of our community and the charitable uh, spheres of our community. We can render our worship to God and our giving through a variety of channels. It's not simply one-dimensional. So please remember that tithing is an Old Testament context. It's an Old Testament concept. When you come into the New Testament, God's expectation is that we would pay our required giving in our taxation and then our heart would be moved and we would give voluntarily, sacrificially, but there is no prescription in relation to how much someone should give. We're going to see it's the exact opposite. God has prescribed not so much figures, but rather he has given us principles that ought to govern our giving. And we're going to see some of these principles which apply to every believer in the Lord Jesus, no matter how little we have, and I mean no matter how little or how much, the principles are the same. And God receives it in the same way with the same value placed upon it. So with that kind of caveat, let's come then to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and see this worked out in principles in relation to our voluntary sacrificial giving. Now, in verse number 1, Paul writes to this Corinthian assembly and says, Moreover, brethren, and the authorised version language is somewhat out of date for us, but we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the church's of Macedonia. Now the background is this. Paul is urging the Corinthian saints to give and he's urging them to give to the assembly of the church in Jerusalem. Now for over a year the Apostle Paul has been collecting money from assemblies on his third missionary journey. And as he's been going about, he has been making known the desperate need of the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea, and he has been advertising that need amongst other assemblies in a different part of the world. And we're going to see that he does so with no apology, but he does so intentionally because he wants a response, but a response is appropriate. Now, the Corinthians have given him a response. They'd started to give, but they'd stopped. In fact, they had been the first to respond, but they're now almost about the last to actually complete the task and to gather the funds. So Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and he says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. 
So he said, gather the funds so that when I come, the funds are ready and you're not scrambling about trying to get this gathered up. Be ready for when I come. Now it's in that context he begins to speak to them. Now look at the verse. He says, I want you to understand that the example of the churches of Macedonia are a compelling example for you to follow in Corinth. Now he's going to speak about a north-south divide. Now we hear all about that in the economy of our country. And the north was impoverished. It was very poor. It had been devastated by wars. The great Roman uh, generals tended to fight their wars in Macedonia rather than Italy. And the place had been ravaged by war and economic deprivation. But in the south, where Corinth was, it was very prosperous. So Corinth is part of a prosperous area. Macedonia in the north is part of the very poor area. And he says, I want you to know about the response of the churches of Macedonia to this humanitarian need in Israel. This catastrophe, this great hardship that they're experiencing and they are your fellow saints and I want you to know how the Macedonian assemblies are now responding that you might respond to. But as he begins to speak about the Macedonian assemblies, notice how he speaks of what they are doing. He says, I want you to know not of the wonderful charity of the Macedonian Christians, not of the super spirituality of these saints up there in the north. He says, I want you to know about the grace of God. Because he identifies the giving amongst the Macedonian churches as a product of God's grace. God's grace. It was the primary motive of their generosity. It wasn't the milk of human kindness. It wasn't empathy or sympathy. It was actually an evidence of the hand of God of work amongst them. And the primary motive of these Macedonian saints was not human philanthropy. It was God's grace at work in their hearts which produced an unnatural generosity towards people that they'd never met. So here are people who are literally emptying their pockets to give to people that they likely will never meet, never see a photo of, obviously, and never come into contact with, but they are going to give. And God has produced this within their hearts. He says it's the grace of God. Now, mind you, let me just say this. When God works in our hearts, he produces things that are not natural. He produces a transformation of character that produces unusual things. And that transformation comes to Christians whereby we are able and ought to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, putting God's things as a priority in our life, which is not a natural thing to do. The natural thing is to put our own priorities first and everything else second. To put our own financial needs first and everything else second. To put our own comfort first, everything else second. To make sure that we have more than enough and far more than enough before we begin to think about everyone else. That's natural. But God's grace produces something that's spiritual, unusual, unnatural. And that transformation of grace causes us, for example, using other scriptures, to set our affections on things above and not on things in the earth. 
So we're able by God's grace to get a perspective upon life and possessions and money, which is not natural, but which is spiritual. It's a heavenly perspective. It's a long view. It's a valuation of material prosperity, which is not confined to time. It's an understanding that what we do is a stewardship of what is God given and his implications for eternity. We handle money differently. We view possessions differently. We view our life differently. And that's not because of anything natural. That's because of God's grace. That happened in Macedonia. It leads us to love God and not the world. That's God's grace. It causes us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's not natural. It's spiritual. And it causes us to long to be obedient to God and his word. You see, Christian generosity, which is renowned, has been for a long time, and rightly so, is an effect and an outcome of saving, sanctifying grace. It's the work of God, and it's one evidence of it. So Paul's removing all thoughts that there's something special about the Macedonians. There's nothing special about the Macedonians. They were just the same as the Corinthians. But the difference lay not in them as people, but in their response to God's work in their hearts. The Corinthians were not responding, but the Macedonians were responding. So he says, I want you to know about the grace of God in the churches in Macedonia. Second point is this. The Macedonian assemblies were giving irrespective of their circumstances. Now, a lot of this, I suppose, is going to be quite personal to all of us because it's a very personal thing, giving. And the Bible teaches us that that is right and it should be. It's not something we should advertise or tell other people about. It's a very personal thing. So as I go through this then, perhaps we would take it personally and consider it personally. They gave irrespective of circumstances because Paul says, in a great trial of affliction, they were given. Now, what were these Macedonian assemblies? Well, Thessalonica was one. And Philippi was another. Macedonia was crumbling economically at this time. And he says, you are going through a great ordeal of affliction. That really means a severe trial. It's like you're in a furnace and you're under pressure. Listen to what he wrote to some of these assemblies. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to Thessalonians, he says, You are following the same path as the believers in Judea. For ye have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. He says, you're having it tough. You're having it as tough as they are in Judea. So these Thessalonians are under pressure. They're being persecuted. They're not living a life of luxury. They're not living in, in peace. What about the Philippians? Philippians 1.29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Do you know, the wonderful thing about them was this, that in the midst of all of that persecution, their focus was not on themselves. 
It wasn't a kind of poor me mentality. Their focus somehow by the grace of God was on the saints in Judea, despite the fact that they were going through severe problems. So they did not have the mentality that I might have, which is, Paul, why are you asking us to send to them? Can someone not be sending to us? I mean, why are you asking us to think about their problems? Have you not seen the problems that we've got? No. They responded to news of suffering saints by a generosity and a consideration of others rather than their own circumstances. So their giving was irrespective of circumstances. Now that's a try, that's a test for us all, is it not? I'm sure we've all done it. I'm sure we've all seen opportunities to meet need of whatever and produced quite a few reasons why it's not the right time for me to get involved in helping out in that need. And our circumstances are not right. Well, their circumstances were not right, but it didn't change the fact that they gave. Now, thirdly, notice that they gave joyfully. He says that, he speaks of, I should say, of their abundance or the abundance of their joy. There was no reluctance in their giving. Now, the word abundance means surplus, and Lenski puts it this way, and it's a strange way of putting, they made a joy of robbing themselves. They made a joy of robbing themselves. It was their joy, listen how unnatural this is. It was their joy to divest themselves of what little they possessed. They took joy in giving away what little they had. Now that's not natural. That's unnatural. If we have very little and we've got a great need, we would protect it and we would make sure that it kind of saw us through and we would want our baseline secure and our minimum needs met. They divested themselves joyfully of what they possessed. It was the grace of God at work. But then notice not just the abundance of their joy, but out of their deep poverty. Deep poverty. Now, deep is actually two words, one being a preposition, and it means according to the depth of their poverty, they gave. Now, poverty here expresses the most difficult kind of poverty. There are two words used in the Bible for being poor. Uh, One is destitute and the other is having just enough. This is the word for destitute. This is beggar. So that, this is used in Luke 16 of the poor man and Lazarus. It's used in Mark 12, verse 42, of the poor widow who throws in two mites. And what we find in this is that they gave, but they did not give out of their abundance of money. They gave out of their abundance of joy and out of their deep poverty. So they were hard up. They had virtually nothing. But they gave. Challenging. And notice their giving was generous they abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Now, here were assemblies that were rich. They just didn't have any money, but they were rich. Laodicea was an assembly that had lots of money, but was very poor in God's estimation. Revelation 3 verse 17, Laodicea, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not thou are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. God's measurement of their wealth was different from theirs. 
He said, you've got lots of money and you're poor. And he says about the uh, Macedonians, you virtually get no money, but you're rich. So they abounded unto the riches, not of their money, but of their liberality. Now, that's an interesting word. It means the opposite of duplicity. It means the opposite of being double-minded. It means being very single-minded. And so they were in their giving. They were not being pulled in two directions. They were focused. Then notice verse 3. For he says this, and here he begins to bring principles to bear from their experience. He says, for to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. Now, their giving was reasonable. Paul is indicating he had first-hand experience of this, and he bears record of it. Uh, the New American Standard puts the verse this way, For I testify that according to their ability, according to their ability, and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So first of all, he says, their giving was proportionate. It was according to their ability, according to their capability they give. Now that's God's expectation. God expects us in our giving to give reasonably in accordance with our ability so to do, our capability. He does not ask, nor does he expect us to go beyond that. That's why in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, when he spoke to the Corinthians about taking up an offering on the first day of the week, he said, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. So that you find there in the Macedonian assemblies that there is a giving that is acceptable to God, which is reasonable in accordance with their capability, but then you find they go way beyond what God expects. They go the second mile, way beyond. For he says, for to their ability and beyond their ability, they were prepared to go beyond what was reasonable. To what was unreasonable. They were prepared to give in a way that actually impoverished themselves in their giving. Now that's a very important principle that's illustrated by the Lord Jesus in the verses that follow. So there was a willingness to give beyond what was reasonable, what was enough. They went beyond it. And that willingness was a sacrificial spirit of giving. They were going to cause themselves pain by their giving. This is very challenging. Notice in verse 4, he then says that their giving was an act of fellowship. So he says... Praying us, so they're giving way beyond what's reasonable, and then they're asking Paul and Titus, but they're asking them and praying us with much entreaty that we would take the gift. Now I can just imagine Paul saying, hey, hold on a minute here. That's more than you can afford. That's actually a bit irresponsible. You are leaving yourself short by meeting the needs of others. So that they did not do, you know, it's the old thing, would you like that? No thanks, well that's okay. 
put it back in your pocket and it's a double whammy because you offered it and you get the credit for offering it and you still get the money in your pocket. Fantastic. No, I'm not going to say anything about a bunch or anything, but that's the kind of idea you see. If someone offers, you know, and you get this idea that afflicts many of us that we think, well, you know, as long as I offered, I did offer, and Paul said, no, it's okay, that's unreasonable. Well, thank goodness for that, but at least I made the effort. Making the effort is a big thing. They didn't stop there, they actually meant it, and they were determined that it was going. Determined. This is serious giving. These are serious Christians. These are Christians who are involved in a spiritual exercise, single-minded in their giving. They're giving to God. It's the work of God. It's It's the grace of God that's pouring through them. And there is an intentionality about it. There's a purpose to it all. It's not a scattergun type of thing. So they pray Paul and Titus with much entreaty that they would take the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. They're pleading, please take this money that they might have the privilege of being in fellowship with the poor saints in Judea. They wanted the opportunity to share and be in fellowship with them. Paul, please take this. We really want to be in fellowship with these saints. Verse 5. Because they appreciated that their giving was worship. This they did, not as we had hoped. Paul says this went way beyond what we hoped. But first gave their own selves to the Lord. Now here's the key. Before they put their hand in their pocket, they laid, metaphorically, they laid themselves upon the altar, which was far more important to God than any money that came out of their pocket. They first gave themselves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Well, you could pick this verse apart. Giving yourself to the Lord and then acting in accordance with the will of God seem to go together. A sacrificial act of worship and then a movement in accord with the will of God. Who wouldn't want that in their life? Who wouldn't want that to be the character of their life? And here they are, they give themselves to the Lord. Everything else flows out from putting it all on the altar. Because what then goes on the altar is easy to let go of. For them, that's what they did. And the first priority was giving up that which was most precious to them, which was themselves. That's Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Everything they were, everything they had, all their talent, energy, relationships, possessions, you name it, they saw themselves as holding it for God and they put themselves on the altar for God. What a lesson for me. Before I give anything to anyone, I should first of all give myself to God. That's what he wants. He wants me. Remember this. It's true. He owns the cattle in a thousand hills. The gold, the silver within his earth is his. He does not require money. He does not require my wealth, meagre though it is. But he does want and require me. That which money cannot buy. 
And an outflow of that would be seeing the grace of God work through me in this unnatural, unusual generosity which impoverishes the giver. It's a spiritual act. So then verse 6, follow it down. And he says, insomuch, and it's the narrative, and Paul's explaining this to the Corinthians, that we desire Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Now he's going to kind of take all of that that he's been reminding them of in relation to the Macedonians, these principles about joyful giving, sacrificial giving, giving themselves to the Lord, and so on. And he says, take that example, and we want you to learn and emulate that example. So he brings Titus into it, and sometime in the past, Titus had visited Corinth and encouraged them initially to start this collection. Now, that was over a year before the book was written. They'd started to give, but stopped, and we don't know why, but look at verse 7. He says, therefore, as ye abound in everything. Now, he says, you abound in so many spiritual virtues. He says, you are characterized by faith in utterance. You can speak the truth. The things that were said in Corinth, they were amazing. The great spiritual truth that were expressed so eloquently and powerfully. He says, listen, you abound in utterance. There are so many words and the words are all true and the words are all powerful. The air is full of all of that in Corinth. There's so much faith. You've got faith, you've got utterance and mind you, there's all this knowledge. And diligence. And love. He says, see that you abound in this grace also. Generosity. It's not giving in isolation. This kind of giving is in perfect harmony with all these other Christian virtues. Because someone whose heart is filled with faith, utterance, knowledge, diligence and love will give. Will give. Someone whose heart is not will not give because they will be reluctant to impoverish themselves for the benefit of another. And you say, well, is this a command? No, verse 8. It's not a command. Paul does not command them to do it. It is rather that this generosity would be a proof of their love. So verse 8, he says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. This is a free will giving. And that's never a command. But what it does do is it's a great <coughs> self-test of our love. Because love gives. Love gives sacrificially. We believe it, we say it, and we ought to practice it, can I suggest. Someone wrote this, you can give without loving. That's required giving. Pay your taxes without loving at all. But you cannot love without giving. So you cannot love without giving. It's essential. 
You see, well, where, where's, the, where's the greatest example of that? Well, surely the example brought here now of the Lord Jesus is there for this reason. His example of giving illustrates most powerfully, even beyond the example of the Macedonians, a giving that is so sacrificial it impoverishes the giver. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he gave some of what he had. Doesn't say that. Though he was rich, he gave a lot of what he had. Doesn't say that either. Says, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. There it is. That's the purpose of that verse. To illustrate self-impoverishment as a result of sacrificial giving. So there's the supreme example. Here is the Lord Jesus, and the bar is just incredibly high when we think about him. And that's why Paul brings it to bear. Because he will not ask us to give like the Lord Jesus. That's impossible. We, we don't possess what he possesses, and we never could get to the depth of his poverty either. The spiritual poverty that he fully experienced on the cross that brought about the spiritual blessing and riches that we possess as believers. It's, it's beyond our contemplation, but the principle is illustrated there. Let's learn the principle that sacrificial giving could, may result in self-impoverishment. And the Lord Jesus is an example of that. And he goes on, look at verse number 10. And he says that the principle of stewardship calls for giving that's voluntary. He says, here and I give my advice. This is expedient for you, he says, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be followed a year ago. He's not commanding, but rather he's not even bringing compulsion to bear. He's appealing to them. To give voluntarily because you'd started doing this a year ago. And now he says, verse 11, perform the doing of it. Because there was a readiness to do it, but a readiness to do it is not the same as actually performance. Which is what he says in verse 11. Now, I don't know what you're like or what we're like as an assembly or your assembly. Or even you privately. But I think many of us are very good at this. Which is we're very good at starting something but not finishing it. And taking an interest in something, but not maintaining an interest. Very few of us get into something for the long haul. <coughs> to see something finished. To stick with something beyond the initial first flush of enthusiasm. But to grind it out in your prayerful support, and your monetary support, in your physical support, or whatever it is. It could be a family in your community. It could be a work in the mission field. It could be a work of the gospel or some aspect of assembly life that you're involved in. And you get involved and you are giving of your time. You are giving of your resources. You are giving yourself to it. But you know what? You've given up. A year's passed. You moved on to something else. We're great at that. The need to commit and the need to see it through and the need to perform is what he's saying. All the good intentions a year ago, he says. They don't mean very little if when I arrive there's no collection. 
And how many of us, and I'm going to take it away from the financial thing just to make the application, because it has to go beyond financial. Now, how many of us, and I'm as guilty, I'm sure, as any of us in the room of doing this, say to people, well, we're going to pray for you. And then after a fortnight, we don't. Just forget it. We don't stick with it. We're not in it for the long haul. We're not just kind of, if you like, getting alongside in fellowship and going through it with someone. They opt out. And it's not deliberate and it's not intentional and it's not nasty or anything like that. It's just lazy and it's just lacking thought and it's just very loose, very, very kind of casual. So Paul's asking them in this context, you started it, finish it. Like the appeal to isn't anything in this. When we start a thing, let's finish it. And when we get involved in something, let's stick with it. And let's not be like that and just be very short term. And if we make a commitment to give, then make sure we give. And if we can make a commitment to pray, let's get prayed. If we make a commitment to do, let's get it done. Paul is not wrong in reminding them of their commitment and instructing them they really should be performing what they promised. Luke 9 verse 62, no one after putting his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom. And some of us get weary, disillusioned, distracted and all the rest of it. And life gets busy and, all, and so on. But these Macedonians, I think, had plenty in their plate. And they were committed to give. He says to the Corinthians, who probably had a much more comfortable life, you need to remember your commitment, financial commitment to these saints. <coughs> and notice this in verse 11. He reminds them of the proportionality of their giving. That there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. Here he's at it again. Out of that which ye have. If there first be a willing mind in verse 12, it is accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that he hath not. God is not asking for the impossible. He's asking for what is reasonable. He's asking for what is sacrificial. For Romans 12 verse 1 teaches me that sacrifice is reasonable when we think about our salvation. It's the logical conclusion and response. Well, let's just finish with this. Why should an assembly in one part of the world gift an assembly in another part of the world? Why would you do that? Well, he mentions this principle in verse number 13 of balancing resources within the body of Christ. So, you think of, for example, the accusations that could be made against Paul. You could accuse him, well, Paul, you're a Jew, you're from Judea. You're wanting to fleece us to feed your own people. You want, you're favouring them over us. So he could accuse them, be accused of a preferential attitude towards the Jerusalem church or seeking to help his friends out. But look at verse 13, he says, no, no, I do not mean that other men be eased and ye be burdened. The purpose of the collection is not to impoverish you. That's not what I've come. That's what the Macedonians did. They went way beyond 
what God's expectation of them was. But that's not my purpose. I'm not coming to make some rich and some poor. But look at verse number 14. He says, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, give and take. At the moment, they're in need. There may come a time when you're in need. You help them when they're in need, and the expectation is they will help you when you're in need. That there may be equality. This is not communism. This is not even socialism. This is biblical doctrine. That God has granted to his people resources. Those resources ought to be used for the benefit of saints. Here and elsewhere. That there may be a balance and a true balance. You get that in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when Paul writes to Timothy and says, charge them that they're rich in this world. He doesn't say that they might become poor. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy that they do good that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may laid hold on eternal life. There's a very important word just to point out in verse 14 before I finish, and it is the word want. But by inequality, he says, now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want that their abundance also may be a supply for your want. You see, they didn't even have the basics of life. But the Corinthians had more than they required. So the Corinthians have far more than they require. The Jerusalem saints don't even have the basics of life. He says there needs to be a balance. Balance it out. It's not to enrich the Jerusalem saints, but simply that their wants, their needs might be met. Because again there may come a time when the reverse is true. This is not new. God has always expected this amongst his people. So he then quotes an Old Testament scripture from Exodus chapter 16. He says, "As is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, he that had gathered little had no lack. It's the manna. This is how God expected his resources for his people to be managed amongst his people. And the illustration is in the manna. You who've gathered much, you won't have too much because you give to those who haven't gathered enough so they've got enough. And he quotes that some people gather too little, some gather too much, but when it was all measured out, there was enough for everybody. And so in Exodus 16 and verse 17 and 18, it says, the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over. He that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. And that's how God expects his people to handle his resources. So we do not build empires of wealth for our own sakes. God has made men rich. But most are not rich. And when you read about some of the men that he has enriched, you can see why he did that. 
because they had the spirituality to handle the wealth that he gave them to handle. And perhaps if we had the same wealth, it would destroy us and we wouldn't cope with it too well. But you see, the fact of the matter is, and let me just say this, that in relation to all the believers who exist in the world at this moment, everyone in here is very, very rich. Everyone else. We are rich because we have no want. No, no want. I can eat as much KFC as I want. You can eat until you're full every day of the week and you'll never hunger. You can go and go in your home and place of shelter and you will never be cold. You will never be damp. You will never be afraid. You see, we live, and it's not a criticism of the circumstances in which we live. It is an observation. So we don't look at our circumstances and say, I wish they were different. We're glad that we've got enough to eat. We're glad that we've got shelter and clothing and safety, and we wouldn't have it any other way. We're not masochists. But you see, we ought not then to forget those who are in want. And to the extent that we can, we ought to have an exercise of heart towards the needs of others. And the wonderful thing about Christians I've discovered is this, that generally speaking, that is true. Generally speaking, that is true. Many, many Christians are very generous with what God has given them, small and large, and have an interest, genuinely, most folk I think it to be true, have an interest in giving and helping when they can. And most assemblies, if they advertise giving for one need or another, one disaster or another, you'll find this, the saints will give. And that's a good thing. And we should never have that changed. And we should understand that it's a spiritual thing to do that. And it should be a characteristic of all of our lives. We don't measure our giving by the numbers of the currency. We measure it by the condition of our heart and the intention of our heart. For that's how God measures it. So let me encourage you, even if you have very little, even if you get very little, God's not so much interested in that, but he's interested in your heart that proportionally in regard to what God has entrusted you with, that you keep this in mind with your resources and steward them well and be willing to give. No prescription as to how much. No prescription as to how often. It's a personal exercise before God in relation to meeting the needs of others. In the community, in the assembly, and so on. I trust that God might bless us in that. And next time I think I'll speak more about the kind of mechanisms that the Bible has put in place for the management of funds in amongst Christians and in a local assembly. So let's just take time to pray.